0: His reading is Isaiah 41 verse 21 to 42 verse 9 and it says present your case says the Lord set forth your arguments says Jacob's king tell us you idols what is going to happen tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are God's Do something, whether good or bad, so that we may be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know, and beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this, no one foretold it, no one heard of any words from you. It was, I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave them Jerusalem, a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give an answer when I speak. ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their image, images, but no, are nothing but the wind and confusion. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirits on him, and he will and he will bring justice to the nations, and he will not shout or cry out, and I will ra- um, raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the island will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all the sp- that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you and will make you to the covenant of the people, and a light for the Gentiles, to open your to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release you from the dungeons of those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to any anyone, any other, and praise your two idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare, before they spring into you being, I announce them to you.
1: Well, hi, my name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders at Christchurch. Thank you so much for tuning in to be with us this morning. And we're going to be looking at that part of the book of Isaiah. If you have a phone at home or a Bible at home, I'd really suggest you get this bit of Isaiah, Isaiah 41 and 42 up in front of you, because I'm going to be referring to it all the way through and you may have no clue what I'm talking about if you don't look at the Bible. So I encourage you to do that. And while you're finding a Bible, can I just say really thank you for tuning in, giving us your time. Um, We're more and more moving back to meeting together, but we realise some people aren't able to do that um, for various reasons. And so thank you for giving us your time online this morning. Um, I can't see you, but we're really glad you've tuned in to see us. Let's just pray together before we look at this bit of Isaiah. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your glory is what we need to see to be satisfied. And we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see and love and honour what you're like. So we pray for that work of the Holy Spirit in us today, in everyone who listens, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, recently, a little while ago, was talking to a friend of mine who'd been through an incredibly traumatic experience, doesn't matter for the purposes of this story what it was, it's personal to them, but it was an awful thing to happen. They're a Christian friend and they said to get through this, it did help to pray, it did help to read the Bible, it did uh, help to be prayed for. She was very grateful for that, she said it helped to be loved just practically by other people. It helped to think, how can I seek God? But she said, the thing that I found most comforting was just sitting, looking at the sea. It's something about the bigness, the the always there-ness, the constant dynamic movement back and forward of the sea. There's something about that that it was comforting. Now, my friend was a Christian, so she said, I guess it's because the sea is the nearest we can get to the sort of bigness and the dynamism, always moving, sense of God always working. But it wasn't sort of logical like that. It wasn't that I looked at the sea and I thought, wow, the sea is big. God is big. I feel better. No, it was something a bit more mysterious than that. The comforting movement and vastness of the sea found a sort of spiritual echo in me with what I know to be true about God. The glory of the sea just sort of comforted me. Now, that's the type of thing we're trying to do by looking at this book of Isaiah, this section, Isaiah 40 to 50. If Isaiah is about anything, it's a prophet in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, but if the book is about anything. It's about what it's like to be God. We get a sort of window in this book into God's inner life. We, we sort of step, in the words of Isaiah, we step into the most holy, the most sacred of spaces, into the world of what it's like for God to be himself. Now, of course, we we can't know everything about that, but Isaiah invites us just to paddle at the shores of what we can understand in the vastness of God's glory. And we're doing it not because we think, well, we'll see this in Isaiah, and then there'll be a logical step to how I can live my life. It's not how it works. We don't see the glory of God and think, well, God is like this, so tomorrow I can be like this. It's a bit more like my friend and the sea. We bring our troubles, our distractions, our worries, our sins, the things we get wrong, and they're soothed and calmed and rested by knowing just this huge majesty and glory of the God who is real. So can I invite you, particularly as you're watching at home, to put aside the distractions for a moment. Don't look at the walls or have a chat with the person you're watching with or scroll through something or have a toilet break. Settle, be still, and let the calming majesty of God bring rest to your soul. Now, if we think about that as like an artist being invited to portray something amazing and being invited in to do that, that's what we're being asked to do. Is we see God's glory and we're being asked to sort of participate in it, to join in with that, if an artist is going to do it, they might have to leave the small trivial painting they're doing by themselves. And it is a bit like that in this passage. If we're going to join in with the glory of God, first of all, we need to see that what we're circling our lives around is often trivial and silly. But we do that. So we can get on the path to the sea we leave that behind so we can instead see the endless dynamic majesty of God that gives us rest for our souls and that's the first thing we're going to see not so much about the real God but about false gods we might have instead and Isaiah says false gods don't speak Recently, um, I was observing a disagreement between two people and one person said something that I thought was fairly sort of, you know, harmless. And the other person seemed to me to totally overreact. And I said to someone else observing this, what's going on there that they totally overreacted? And they used this phrase I like. They said, oh, there's beef there. What they mean is there's a past problem that's leading to this extreme seeming reaction. They've had an argument in the past. There's beef there. That's how the passage starts. I sort of feel a bit like, ooh, God, you're overreacting. It starts with God saying, bring in all your idols, line them up, see if any of them can say anything. It's like, ooh, seems a bit of an extreme uh, reaction, God, but there's beef here. You see, the Lord is the real God who promised to love and care for these people. He would be their God, they would be his people, But like children, like my children, who always want to stick their fingers in candle flames, even though you warn them and say it's dangerous, the people who knew God were drawn to the false gods, the wrong and made-up gods of the nations around them. Even though they could see the nations around them, worship these horrible gods, and because they worshipped horrible gods, they did evil things. That's been the history over several centuries, and so there's beef here. And the Lord is saying, okay, well, bring in your false gods. Let's see how good they are. Let's line them up, see if they can tell us something. But of course they can't. They're less than nothing. This is what God says about their gods. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. These false gods, they are worse than nothing. They don't do anything. They're worthless. And whoever chooses that is detestable. Whoever chooses this false god to shape everything in their life around is detestable because you know it's not real. You know it doesn't help you. And in fact, it makes you a worse person. It's a detestable thing to do, God says, to swap the glory and relationship of the amazing God who's real and wants to renew his image in you make you a reflector of your glory who loves you so much for a false god that you know makes you into a worse person. I had a friend who went to a party with an estate agent who was relatively well known and he was a bit of a sleazy guy. My friend was a female and she said she was just standing waiting to go to the toilet and the guy walked up to her and lifted the necklace that was on her neck and said, that's that's a pilgrim piece of jewellery, isn't it? And she said... Yeah, how would you know that? And he said, well, I know a lot of things. She said, oh, strange that, because you didn't know how to sell my brother's house. You think you know a lot, but you didn't, in fact, know anything. And that's what God is saying about the false gods. Oh, they, they look impressive, like they know so much. They didn't know the simplest thing. They didn't know, for example, God says, that I was going to stir up a king from the north to remove you from the land you lived in completely. None of your idols predicted that. It was the Lord who told you that would happen and you should get ready, but of course, none of you did. So you see what the Lord's saying to them? You knew perfectly well that these false things you built your life around, they couldn't tell the future. They make you worse as a person And things happened which they never prepared you for, and still you choose to worship them instead of the real God. It's detestable. And when you were in real trouble in life and you went to your idol, you said, oh, tell us something that can help us, there was silence. No help at all. The picture of them tapping their statues, trying to get them to speak, it's a powerful image of what it's like to look to anything else in life, to be the safe place that the Lord says he will be for us. Now, I'm a big fan of science. There's a lot of religion versus science chat in the world. I'm not one of those people. I'm not someone who's suspicious of science. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. It's amazing what science has done for us over this last year to get us out of the mess we're in, and they're on the way to doing that. Praise the Lord for that. But I'm one of these people who is tempted to trust science to just solve all of our problems instead of giving the future to the Lord. And I loved it this week. I've ended up following loads of virologists and public health people on Twitter. And one of them tweeted this week. I thought it was very honest. They said, I wouldn't be surprised if this third wave of the the epidemic surged for a while, or if it plateaued, or if it started petering out. So it's basically him saying, I wouldn't be surprised if it did anything. Now, here's the truth that I've been learning. I, over this year, have longed for the scientists to tell us something to give us hope. But what we've discovered, I think, is that even the cleverest people, you tap them, they don't know the future. No matter how much we tap their system, how much we worship their system, it can't give us peace. I find myself endlessly trying to get comfort and peace from their pronouncements. But all their pronouncements basically seem to be, we don't know the future. Every model of coronavirus has basically been wrong. Now that's not the fault of the people, the scientists, it's my fault. It's not the people actually I idolise, it's their system. I think discipline, the scientific discipline and human intellect can give us peace and hope and joy, when really it's knowing the Lord that gives those things. And the Lord says, well, look at that thing you've been worshipping, how good has it been at telling you the future? give it a good tap, not at all good. And all of us are making that swap. This series is going to mostly be about in Isaiah, receiving the comfort that comes from knowing the power and majesty and endless grace and amazing kindness of the one true God who we meet through Jesus, but lots of us are blocked from experiencing that because we're so attached to something else, tapping it repeatedly to say, you give me comfort, you give me peace. It could be a particular worldview that you hold, it could be a particular relationship, or it could be the lack of a relationship, saying if I had that relationship, I've would had peace. It could be a job or career, it could just be a life situation something you're relying on to get what the Lord is actually offering you into relationship with him and God says well bring it out how much does it actually do what you need it to do not at all don't cling on to that instead of coming to know and accept and receive God's glory but I realize as I realize as God realizes that's not enough It's not enough to know your affections are all attached to the wrong thing. No, you need to really change your heart, what one writer has called the expulsive power of a new affection. You need to have your, like, something, not just to say, well, you're attached to the wrong thing, but something else your heart really wants to attach to. There's a church in Liverpool called uh, Bridge Chapel, and the minister there, who's just retiring, is also a, cha- a chaplain at Liverpool Football Club. And I was once giving a seminar to a student group in their building, a very interesting seminar, I thought, on how to run a small group, when um, Bill arrived and he was carrying the Champions League trophy, which Liverpool had won that year. Well, let me tell you, all the affection for my seminar was expelled by the glory of something greater arriving in the building. There was no more hanging on my words when the glory of the Champions League trophy was there. That's what's going to happen in Isaiah 42. It's not just going to say your idol is false and crazy to worship and it's wrong. It's detestable to love that instead of the living God. It's saying, look at this instead and your affections will move to something so much better Here's the second thing we see. The Lord does speak. And this is what he said, Isaiah 42 verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold. A stronger um, translation would be, behold, look at my servant. So the Lord is confident that looking at this person he calls his servant will sort of push out any thoughts of the silly, foolish things we're giving our lives to instead. Look at what he says about his servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. God says, leave your stupid idols. Behold, look, here is my servant whom I uphold, who I lift up so everybody can see. Who I, the Lord says, delight in. I love my servant. He's great and I want you to love him too. So we're touching something mysterious here. It's not just a servant, someone who serves the Lord. The Lord has a relationship of delight with this mysterious figure. Like the joy of seeing a wedding photo, two people loving each other, or the infectious laugh of two friends who haven't seen each other for ages, or the heartwarming view of a child running to their dad. That's the joy we're observing between the Lord and his servant. The Lord of everything has this relationship of delight. He wants to lift up and show everybody this servant who he thinks is great. The servant has God's spirit and bring God's justice. So our dead gods, they don't speak. But the real God does. And what he says is, look at my servant. Look how much I delight in him. I'm happy to pour out everything good I have on him. And he's going to bring justice to the world. The Lord likes it he'll bring justice. I feel a little bit less happy about that. Um, How I feel sometimes was summed up in a tweet I read this week that said, um, I get angry and want God to smite people all the time until I realise I am people. Justice brings my fear of exposure, my fear of getting into trouble. But what this servant does is totally remarkable. He unfailingly brings justice, but he's going to do it without even raising his voice. Never mind having an armed revolution. He will do it right to the ends of the earth so everybody will be invited to have hope in him, but that perfect righteousness will be brought without anyone weak, being hurt, or crushed. I was talking to someone in church once about the country they came from, which had a very corrupt leadership, famously. And I remember saying to them, do you think there's going to be any change? And she said to me, I think there will be, but it will take violence. And the bad thing about violence is that some innocent people are bound to get hurt. But it's the only way justice can come. But the servant, he is going to bring perfect justice And no weak people will be hurt by him at all. Wow. Behold the servant. Love him more than your foolish idol. It will be much better to love him and be comforted by him and trust in him than that dead thing that can't even tell the future. And that God's servant is like this. Well, it's good news for you if you're bruised or you're smouldering. A bruised reed, it's like a, a plant that's half broken. The leaf could just fall off because it's been sort of half crushed. Well, here is the guarantee about God's servant who he delights in. This is all with God's approval. He will not break you if you're bruised like that. He will not crush you and pollute to pieces. He will bring absolute justice and peace and righteousness but without you, bruised, battered person being hurt at all. Or a smouldering wick, it's like a candle flame that's nearly going out. It's a great picture of my Christian life. There's light in my Christian life. You know, there's a flame wanting to do the good, the right thing, a weak love for God. A sense of what I should be like is there, but there's a lot of smoke too. It's a dirty flame. It's a pathetic attempt, mix up with my own sin and self-interest to please God. Well, the servant, he's not going to blow out pathetic attempts. He's going to bring justice in gentleness and care for bruised and broken people. And he's going to bring justice, but not in a way that blows out people whose best moments are still pretty mucky and messy. Wow, it's no wonder is it, that the Lord delights so much in this servant. He's going to bring justice, but without violence or fear. He's going to offer that rightness to the whole world, and he does it without crushing anyone, without demeaning anybody who wants to do what's right. Look at the servant. He is a better one to trust and worship and get help from than whatever you're chasing with your life. We're doing this thing in Connect Groups at the moment, if you're in one, about how to talk about Jesus without being really irritating to people who are around you. And one of the things that the guy recommends in the book is think of your favourite story about Jesus and just be able to tell it. And people sort of talk about why your faith matters to you. So here's my favourite one about Jesus. There's a woman who's got a horrible health condition that means she's been bleeding her whole life. Because of that, in her culture, she's an outcast. People think she's disgusting. She's totally alone. And she's spent all her money on doctors trying to get better, so she's destitute. And in the story, she goes up to Jesus, doesn't even let him know she's there. She just goes up and touches the end of his cloak, and she's healed immediately. Well, Jesus starts saying, who touched me? Who was it who touched me? And his disciples say, oh, get over it, Jesus. Loads of people touch you. We're in a crowd. Jesus is like, no, I must know who touched me. And there's jeopardy here. Is she going to be told off for touching Jesus without permission, this important teacher? She comes forward and throws herself at his feet and apologises. And Jesus lifts her up and says to everybody looking around, all the people who rejected her because they thought they were better, She's a model of true faith for everybody. Oh, it just gives me chills thinking about it. This abandoned, alone woman, and Jesus exalts her as a model that we, centuries later, should follow. After she'd lived her whole life separate from everybody. And I love the picture of Jesus. She just touched his cloak. Goodness, rightness, it just sort of comes out of him, spreads out from him. And so smouldering flames, crushed, bruised people. Well, Jesus, rightness comes out of him and the flow is there, lifted up and exalted as models for everybody else to follow. The servant in Isaiah 42 is Jesus. And we can see why God the Father delights in him. We can see why God wants us to behold him. We can see why a tired and faithless and weak heart would be lifted by him. Here is a person on whom I can rest and hope and trust, no matter how feeble I am. Now, it may be your experience that Christians have got this wrong. They've said words or done things to you that have crushed or burdened or hurt you. I'm sure I've done that to people. So today I want to say, don't look here. Behold the servant. I promise you, he will bring righteousness, but you can trust him not to break you. No matter how bruised you are, he, and he will not dismiss you, no matter how feeble your attempts to follow him, this endless, gracious glory of God shown in his servant is like the sea, huge, stretching out, always moving with beauty, that comforting vastness. You know, as I go through life and I get older and I just talk to people more. People are carrying so much through life. Bruises from the pain of the world. Incredibly heavy awareness of the things they've got wrong. Please, behold the servant. Look at and enjoy and rest and hope in Jesus who will bring justice, he will make it right. That all flows out from him, but he does that without crushing or hurting or demeaning anyone. Your affection for him will expel and throw out your love for all the dead things that don't really help. Third thing we see, the Lord speaks to his servant. My kids love to play this game. I don't know whether it's from TV or something where they do uh, this big build-up. They say, Daddy, I want to introduce you to the amazing, the stupendous, the magnificent Bob. I don't know why they do it. There's a little bit of the anticlimax, I think, in these next few verses. Verse five, this is God, not an idol, but God speaking. It gives God quite a build up before he speaks. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people, and life to those who walk on it. Wow, big build up. What is he going to say in verse 6? Oh, that's a bit embarrassing. When he speaks, he's not speaking to us at all. You read it and you realise we're overhearing a conversation between us and his servant. The build-up isn't for us to hear anything from God. He's promising to help the servant bring justice to people, which he's already said he'll definitely do. And then when he does announce something in the world to verse eight, I find it quite strange. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. That's weird, isn't it? You're not gonna share your glory with another You've just been telling us about your servant. You've just been upholding him for us to see. Aren't you sharing your glory with him? Saying we should trust in him. It seems like the servant who you want to bring glory to, if you don't share your glory with another, he must be somehow one with you, Lord then we begin to see that what seems to be like a huge letdown is actually opening up something incredibly profound, something incredibly holy, just sort of revealed to us, something we can just only humbly see and be awed by. There's one God in heaven, but that God is more than one person. The one who takes the form of the servant Is God himself becoming a servant? Because God does share his glory with him. God can lift up and glorify the servant without sharing his glory because they are one. Here's the amazing, a glorious, majestic thing about the one real God. He is in himself a relationship of three persons. And so when the Lord lifts up his servant, he's delighting in his son the servant serves us by bringing justice, by tending to bruised reeds and smouldering flames, it's God himself stepping in gentleness and grace towards us. And so when it's announced that it's the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth speaking, and then we discover he's speaking to the servant, hold on a minute, that means we're overhearing a conversation, a plan, an internal encounter between, between God the Father and God the Son letting us in to that holiest of places. I mean, even if what they said wasn't at all relevant to us, what an awesome privilege to hear this eternal plan of burning love and holiness between two members of the Trinity being, being unpacked. God says, I'm the God who speaks. And I invite you in to hear the holiest words I say to my beloved divine son. I just delight in. Even more than that, it does have something to do with us. God says to his son, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind and free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. It does have something to do with us. The father is saying to his son, the Lord is saying to his servant, I'm giving you a mission and I'm going to empower you to do it. And this mission, these members of the Godhead are talking about, is that God the Father wants to give his perfections to his Son to bring light to people like us. That's what we should read. A light for the Gentiles. I'm a Gentile, I'm not Jewish. God the Father and God the Son are having a conversation in eternity that includes me. I feature in the conversation God the Father is having with his Son. Even more than that, When they're talking about what they're going to do in the world, they're particularly interested in those who might be considered less. Those with disabilities, those who are prisoners, who've done things wrong, those who own nothing, those who might be cast out. They're the topic of conversation between the Eternal Father and the Eternal Son. This conversation That's happening outside time and space. A plan that's being made in worlds that we can't even imagine. These beings beyond our conversation, beyond our comprehension, their conversation is about them working together to bring light to people like me, godless and far from God. Can you grasp that just for a minute? In heaven, the only self-sufficient eternal beings there are are talking about using their combined power on behalf of the rejected, the incapable, the crushed, the people who are being punished for doing things wrong. They're the topic of conversation between God and his son. The glory of it. I spend my days tapping the dead God for answers. Why won't you give me comfort? Why won't you give me hope? Why won't you give me joy? And like looking at the sea, I'll be soothed. I'll get rest when I just engage in awe-filled worship of this eternal God who delights in his son, this perfect son who gives himself in service to us, the Godhead who when they make a plan, their plan is to bring hope to the poorest and weakest and tiredness. What glory, the glory of it all. I say to you today, Like God says to all of us, behold the servant.